Well, I'm very excited to uh, continue our little series in Titus. Um, I think the danger is that there is so much to say. Uh, it's kind of knowing what to leave out. <laughs> um, I feel like we could spend a long time uh, looking at uh, some of these issues. Let me remind you where we've been. We entitled our series Establishing an Effective Church. And uh, the reason we've done that is because of verse 5. Paul is writing to Titus because he's left him somewhere to establish effective churches. He's left him on the island of Crete. Uh, it wasn't an easy job or an easy thing for Titus to do. But this whole letter is, uh, is Paul as the great apostle giving advice to his uh, colleague, uh, Titus, as to how he can establish an effective church. And uh, the first thing that we said that in a, that, that's needed really if an effective church is going to be established is strong leadership. And that's really what chapter 1 is about. And uh, again in verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. The first thing that Titus was to do was to make sure that there was strong leadership in place so that the churches there in Crete could be effective. Last week, we were thinking about the character of a Christian leader. And uh, we were looking really at verses uh, 6 down, I suppose, to verse 8. Uh, and that was all about character. Uh, my question for you today is, is really uh, about the role of a Christian leader so my, my question to you as we start today, this is one for you to keep in mind and think about what is the number one priority or the number one job or the number one function or the number one priority of a Christian leader? What do you think? Shall we make that a rhetorical question or do you want to give me some answers? What, what's the number one priority for a Christian leader? I, I can tell you as a Christian leader that I have a lot to do. <laughs> There's lots of different things. But what, is, what do you think is the number one priority of a Christian leader? Go on then. Carl? Point people to Jesus. To point people to Jesus. Very good. Joan? Is that... To lead God's people. To lead God's people well. Okay, excellent. Is it all on this side or anyone on this side? Number one priority of a Christian leader. Oh, you're all rocking your brains and hoping I don't look at you now. <laughs> oh, don't look at me, please. Okay, going, going. I would say he has a strong belief himself. Strong belief himself, good. Dawn? Should be Bible teaching. Okay, excellent. Well, let's look at verse 9. We've thought about the character of a Christian leader. But. Paul here moves on to talk about the role of a Christian leader and this is what Paul says it's not the only verse in the Bible that talks about this but verse 9 he says to Titus that a Christian leader must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who Oppose it. That's a good definition of the role, the primary function 
of a Christian leader, isn't it? What a great verse. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Well, we're going to base our thoughts mainly on that verse. But we're going to jump around a little bit in chapter 1 as well. Um, let's, uh, let's get the verse up there on the screen. Um, there, there is a trustworthy message. The way that Paul puts that is very significant, isn't it? There is such a thing as a message that is reliable and trustworthy. And so I want to uh, begin by saying four things about this trustworthy message. That, that, that's a subject in itself. But let's say four things about this trustworthy message. And here they are. I'll give you them all at once so I don't forget to click. It's encouraging. It has authority. It doesn't change. And it works. That's the essence of the trustworthy message here that Christian leaders are called to hold on to firmly. First of all, it's encouraging. I think that's um, a good thing for us to acknowledge at the beginning here. I I think there is a sense that that we live in a culture that is very cynical. I think um, there is a sense in which people can ask the question, you know, is there anyone that I can really trust. Some people, I suppose, even relationally, you know, have have very difficult experiences relationally. Is there anyone that I can really trust? Or anything that I can really trust? I want to say to you this morning, very plainly, very bluntly, you can trust God. You can. You can trust God. This is a trustworthy message. I, I speak to many Christians who, who, who seem to be struggling. And sometimes they'll use that phrase to me and say, you know what, I, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with my faith at the moment. And there's a sense in which there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes life can be hard and we do struggle with our faith. But I I, I want to say to you this morning, have you forgotten that there is a trustworthy message? There is something for you to believe in that is rock solid, that you can build your life on. It is reliable and trustworthy. I think that's encouraging, isn't it? The reason why that's encouraging is, is really the second point. It's authoritative. Let me just dwell on this point a little with you one of the things that I want to say about this trustworthy message that Paul refers to here is that it rises it doesn't just rise it towers above the consumerism that people often have when they come to think about spirituality we, we, John Benton in his commentary on, um, on Titus uh, talks about that our modern world is really like a marketplace of ideas. Uh, sometimes I've been in rather a market and you've got all the stores there, you know, come and buy this, come and buy that. And it's almost like our culture in relation to truth is like that. There's a marketplace of ideas. None of them 
are absolutely true, but you can come into that market and you can take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you can buy a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you can create your own choice of truth from that marketplace of ideas. Can I say again very plainly that the Bible smashes that idea to smithereens? Because life actually isn't a marketplace of ideas. There is a God who reigns on high. And this is a trustworthy message. It carries his authority behind it. There is such a thing as truth. Pilate, at Jesus' trial, said to Jesus, what is truth? There is such a thing as truth. Paul has no doubt here that there is such a thing as a trustworthy message that needs to be held onto. One of the biggest threats, I think, that our modern culture poses uh, to us is the very postmodern idea that there is no such thing as a truth that is true for everyone. It's up to you, really, to find your own truth. We talked about the futility of that before, but suffice it to say, for now, that the Bible transcends and towers above all of that. We are not floundering around in the sea looking for bits of wood that we can cling on to so that we can float. Actually, we can climb out of the sea and stand on the land because there's a trustworthy message. The reason it's authoritative is because it isn't man-made. It comes to us from outside of ourselves. That's really crucial, isn't it? Just um, keep your finger in Titus and just turn back with me uh, to another letter that Paul wrote uh, to Christians in Galatia. Galatians chapter 1, page 1168, if you're in one of the church Bibles. Here Paul's writing to a completely different group of uh, Christians in another place. And he says there, chapter 1 and verse 11, Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. That's Paul's claim. I'm not teaching you something that I just dreamt up one day. This isn't something that men have made up. This is God's truth. It isn't man-made. It isn't consumerism. This is a trustworthy message that comes from the Lord God himself. I want to say as well that it's authoritative for this reason. It is a trustworthy message because God himself is trustworthy. The reason that we can trust this message is because God is not a liar. Paul says that here in Titus chapter 1. Dawn read it to us. In verse 2. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie promised before the beginning of time 
It's interesting that the Cretans were known as liars. They were known colloquially as a, as a dishonest people. Um, one of their own prophets, Ep- Epimenides, if I could say it, uh, said that. Paul quotes him in verse 12. It's a very famous quote. And there's lots of evidence in secular writings of the Cretans being known for their greed and for their dishonesty. doesn't mean that every Cretan was like that, but that was their cultural norm. And here Paul, right at the beginning, contrasts that with a God who does not lie. There is a trustworthy message that is authoritative. God's word is true because God is true. God's promises can be believed and stood upon because he himself is reliable and trustworthy. And we've, we've got to come to terms with this, haven't we? You know, if, if someone uh, says something to you, you know, one, one of the first things that you ask, you, we almost do it subconsciously, don't we? Is, is this person a crackpot or can I, can I really trust what they say? But when we pick up the Bible, we're, we're not dealing with the words of, a, of another human being merely, but the very word of God coming to us. And we can believe it. It's a trustworthy message because God is truthful. What else did we say? It doesn't change. I just want you to notice, this is really important, I want you to notice the phrase in verse 9, a Christian leader must hold firmly to this trustworthy message as it has been taught. Did you notice that? It's almost like a little bracket. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. We could miss that. And uh, Paul, it looks like he's just making a throwaway comment, but he isn't. This, Paul is writing this 30 years after Jesus and his death and resurrection and ascension. And yet already here, Paul speaks to Titus in terms of holding fast to something that has already been taught. The implication is there is a body of truth, a message that's trustworthy and powerful, and yet people were already beginning to deviate from it and believe something else. So he says, you need to appoint church leaders, Christian leaders, who are holding fast to a trustworthy message as it has been taught. They're not to make stuff up. They're not to deviate from the message that's already been taught over the last brief 30 years. So what Paul's saying is, leaders must hold fast to something that does not change. Let let me just try and show you how deep the foundations are for this. This this is really important. Let's start with Paul himself. What does Paul say at the beginning of chapter 1 here? He he says that he himself has received a a job from God. It says in verse 3, At his appointed season, God brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. God has given Paul a very special job. He calls himself an apostle. We we touched on this a little bit last week. Um, The the apostles were were special men. We don't have apostles now. Who were entrusted with proclaiming the truth about Jesus. And uh, they, they were eyewitnesses of Jesus and his resurrection. 
Paul talks about himself being abnormally born. He wasn't there, but he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. An amazing conversion. He, he hated Christians. He was throwing them in prison, having them stoned, put to death. And Jesus met him on the Damascus Road and gave him the job of proclaiming this message as an apostle, just like the other apostles. The church is founded on this. Um, in, in Acts chapter 2, um, we're told, uh, very early on, after the day of Pentecost, it says, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, these early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They recognised that the apostles were men who had special and unique authority from God to proclaim the truth about Jesus. And they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. That's what they based their church on. And I think this is really special uh, for two reasons. Uh, first of all, we, we need to understand that these apostles appear at a crucial time in history to interpret the coming of Jesus. Paul himself says here in chapter 1 at the beginning that God had made promises before the beginning of time. This goes right back into eternity. And Paul sees himself as an apostle caught up in a massive story. This is something that God has promised before he even created the world. That one day Jesus would come and these apostles are caught up in an amazing story. And, and their job at that point in history was crucial. What, let, let me try and illustrate this. One, one of the big issues that we often see with cults and um, religious movements is that they're often based, aren't they, on one man claiming to have a special hotline to God. Joseph Smith, in the 1800s, claimed that uh, he'd found some special plates and, uh, in a cave, and, and an angel interpreted what the plates said, and he wrote the Book of Mormon. Nobody else was there. Joseph Smith claimed that he had a hotline to God, one man. Whenever you talk about cults or religious movements, you'll often find that it's one man. God has revealed something to me, and it's my job to share it with the world. Many people have said that. All, all the way, I, I remember as a teenager seeing David Icke in his purple shell suit on TV, claiming to be the son of God. He was a sports presenter, for crying out loud. And he, he, I, I am the son of God. People can say the craziest thing. But that's not how God's revealed himself to us. Jesus was promised in the Old Testament. Over thousands of years, God spoke through prophets, and kings, and priests, and even through the very unfolding of that history itself. And all the while, the, the whole of that Old Testament history is pointing to a Messiah who would come. They didn't fully appreciate what he would be like when he came. And then Jesus is born. He appears on the scene. And his identity is confirmed because he totally fulfills all that's been promised all over the years before. And he chooses certain men 
And he says to them, you are my witnesses. I want you to go and proclaim what you've now seen. My death, the fact that I've been raised to life, the things you've heard me teach and the things you've seen me do. I want you to go and proclaim what you've seen and tell people that this is the fulfillment of everything that was promised before. When you read the book of Acts, everywhere Paul went, he began with the Old Testament scriptures and debated with the Jewish leaders and proved to them that Jesus was the Christ. Have you seen this, what it says in the Old Testament, guys? Jesus fulfilled that. Have you seen this in Isaiah? Jesus fulfilled that. Have you seen what it says here? Jesus fulfilled that. This is not a flash in the pan. This is not one person in a cave with a whole load of suspicious looking plates. This has been written in history. And Jesus is the culmination of that. And he has sent us to proclaim a trustworthy message. These apostles have unique authority. And I, I want to say to you that the second reason why these apostles are important is when, when, when we talk about the Bible being the word of God, it, it, it actually says this in Ephesians, the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. What we have is a trustworthy message. And the job of a Christian leader is to hold fast to that message just as it has been taught. It doesn't change. Christian leaders are not called to be innovators. They're not called to be philosophers. They're not called to invent new ideas. What they're taught, Paul says it here in verse 9, hold firmly to the message as it has been taught. Prophets and apostles. The Bible is finished. It's written. God has enshrined in his written word everything that we need to know. And Christian leaders are to hold fast to that trustworthy message as it has been taught. What that means is that any Christian leader who stands up and says, Hey everyone, I'm a Christian leader. <laughs> you should listen to me. The test is, does what he says square with what has always been taught? Does what I say square with what the Bible says? That's why I say to you, sit there with your Bible on your lap and you make sure that I'm not making stuff up. You should be looking at that and saying, Hang on a minute, Ian, the Bible doesn't say that. Did you just dream that everything that we do has got to be grounded in the Bible the issue here is that the teaching of every future generation after Christ is always to be measured against that apostolic teaching that's why the early church devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and that's why we do exactly the same we devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles we're not inventing new things God has given to us his word written by man but inspired and breathed out by God. Every word of it is God's word. It's perfect. It has authority. 
and it carries with it all the weight of God's wisdom and truth and love and power and grace. So when Paul says, hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught, he's really saying, hold to the Bible, isn't he? It's the word of God. Hold to its truth. Hold to its message. This is one reason why I suppose churches like ours have statements of faith. A statement of faith isn't the Bible. In fact, I've got one here. (laughs) Here's one I prepared earlier. I just got sent this in the post last week. The FIC statement of faith. What is the one there? Nine things. God, the Bible, the human race, the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation, the Holy Spirit, the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, the future. That's a summary. It's a statement of faith. What is that based on? It's based on a trustworthy message, just as it has been taught. It's so important that we realize that that our faith is grounded on a solid Foundation, a trustworthy message. Let me say, uh, lastly, there, I put a little exclamation mark, it works. This is a trustworthy message that changes lives. Paul says this again right at the start Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. We'll come back to that as we think about the opposite. This, this is a trustworthy message that is powerful. It comes from God. It comes to us from outside of ourselves. It's authoritative. It doesn't change. It concerns Jesus. And it changes lives. All over the world, ever since Jesus was here on this earth, The gospel has been changing lives. And uh, let let, let me leave that point because we'll come back to that. I want to ask the question then, why is this important? Well, here we are 30 years after Jesus lived in this world. And just look with me again. Verse 9, we've thought about. Verse 10 begins with the little word for. In other words, what Paul says in verse 9 must hold firmly to trustworthy message as it's been taught so you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. The little word for at the start of verse 10 you could, you could put because there, couldn't you? It really means because. Because there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of this circumcision group. From the very beginning there have been people who will believe and who will teach things that are not true and not trustworthy. This is 30 years after Jesus. You would think it would be utopia. But it isn't. Paul has said, if you're going to establish an effective church, Titus, on Crete, you need to put leaders in place who cling to this trustworthy message because there are people who don't believe it and who will teach Lies, to put it bluntly. The sad thing is that these lies will sometimes arise within the church itself. 
then Paul says that to the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. People will come even from within you and seek to lead you astray. Churches are not perfect. They're made up of people who have a strong grasp. They're made up of people who have a weak grasp. Sometimes people arise within churches who are influential, but they're teaching things that ought not to be taught, that don't square with that apostolic, authoritative message. Sometimes there are people in churches who take their ideas from people outside the church who don't believe the gospel at all. Isn't it significant that Paul says, many? Wouldn't it be great if he said, listen, there's one rebellious guy who lives down the road. Just really be careful, because when he comes out of his front door, you can really nail him. Uh, And that would be easy, wouldn't it? We can stand on the truth, because there's one guy. There, There isn't one guy. There are many rebellious people let let me just give you an illustration of that Um, I don't know if you recognise this picture Um, maybe you do maybe you don't there was a film that came out maybe 10 years ago called The Thomas Crown Affair I don't know if you like that sort of film Piers Brosnan was in it and um, it's funny how these films make you sympathise with the guy who's doing all the thieving (laughs) He's really a very wealthy businessman who's a bit bored, so he takes to stealing pictures. It's this kind of thing, adrenaline. And he, but there's an insurance investigator who latches onto him and he falls for her. And to prove his love for the investigator, he promises that he'll put a picture back in broad daylight, four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon or something. The museum's packed. How on earth is he going to put the picture back? Well, there's a bit of a twist. But uh, this picture is relevant in the film. Uh, Ironically, this picture is called The Son of Man. No idea. By a French artist, René Magritte. And there's an incredible scene in the film where Thomas Crown dresses up in a suit to look just like this man. He doesn't have the apple on his nose, but he just wears the suit. And he has a briefcase. And he walks in through the front door and he stands there and looks up at the CCTV cameras with his case. And the police are in the back room watching and they can see, you know, he wants us to know he's here. And then he walks along the kind of foyer and he puts the case down and another guy dressed in the same suit comes down the steps and picks the briefcase up. And then another guy appears in the same suit with a different briefcase. And the police say, keep your eye on him. No, hang on, he's put it down and that guy's picked it up. Keep your eye on him. And before you know it, there's about 50 guys all walking around on the CTV cam- CTV- CCTV cameras with this suit on, with brown briefcases. And they can't tell which one is the real guy. It's quite brilliant. Why do they not know who the real guy is? Because there are so many decoys. Isn't that the idea? They look plausible, they look real, but only one of them is. How can you tell what's real and what's pretend? There is a trustworthy message, but there's all these decoys wandering about. Many, many decoys. Falsehood and lies and pretend. Truth comes from God. 
who does not lie. Jesus said that the devil is the father of lies. In the Garden of Eden, when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, the first thing that he did was to cast doubt on God's word. Did God really say that if you do this, this will happen? Did he? All the time, casting aspersions on God's truth. Did God really say? Is that not an accurate description of the world we live in? There's a trustworthy message and there are many, many people who say, nah, God didn't really say that, did he? Just look with me at what Paul says. Because in verse 11, he says, these, these rebellious people must be silenced. We'll come back to that. Why? Because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. You, the, the point is, you will be listening to someone and something. And God's truth, this trustworthy message, is a life-giving message that will do you good. It will do you good eternally. But there are lies too that are capable of ruining households. This is a serious business. The issue here is not the economy or our upbringing or social mobility or the big society or some kind of philosophy or psychology. In the end, the thing that ruins lives is people rejecting truth and believing a lie. So the reason a Christian leader needs to hold firmly to this trustworthy message, as it has been taught, is so that he'll be able to encourage believers and refute lies. There's nothing more important for a Christian leader to do than that. Very, very quickly, let me just look at these false teachers. And uh, let me show you how we can spot them uh, before time was up. First of all, I want you to notice the focus of a, of a false teacher. You, you can read this passage at home, obviously, and, and you can think about this some more. Look at what Paul says in verse 14, or the end of verse 13. Rebuke them sharply so that they'll be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths. One of the issues with a false teacher is that they will always be obsessed with things that we're not really meant to know. I didn't know this and, until I studied it this week, but even in the Old Testament there were rabbis who, who were into what people call now numerology. So they looked at the Hebrew alphabet, gave each letter a number, and then when they looked at the Old Testament teachings, they would come up with all sorts of weird ideas based on the numbers that they come up with. The idea is, we're not interested in what the Bible just plainly says. What we want to know is, what's the hidden meaning behind it? And they would look at genealogies. We have genealogies in the Bible. It kind of shows that the gospel's grounded in history and real people, as Carl was saying earlier. But they would make stuff up. 
this guy in this genealogy, you never guess what he did. And the whole kind of mythical legends that would arise, controversies and genealogies. Look at what Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 9. He says to Titus, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's never going to do anyone any good. He's obsessed with trivia that's not even important. He's living in a dream world. Myths, controversies. Paul says the same to Timothy. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, he said to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 4, verse 4 command certain men not to devote themselves to myths. Imagine that, to devote yourself to a myth. And endless genealogies, these promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Do you know there are still people around today who do exactly the same thing. They're always looking for the secrets. They're always trying to guess. I wonder when Jesus will come back. I wonder who the Antichrist is. I wonder what this is. It's all irrelevant trivia. All around the edges. And they spend 99% of their time thinking about things that are only important for 1% of the time instead of thinking about Jesus and the gospel and sin and death and hell and heaven. Conspiracy theories. False teachers will always focus on things that are either not important or just nonsense. And there's a chance for us, whenever the church loses sight of its mission and starts to get sidetracked with trivia and petty secondary issues, you'll probably trace the route to some form of false teaching. People are dying. And we're arguing about trivia. Hold fast the trustworthy message. As it has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute the lies. The second uh, thing that false teachers do is they have this weird ideas about sin. The Bible just talks about sin as sin. Simon touched on this last week. But what happens now is that sin gets relabeled, doesn't it, as an illness or a little bit of indulgence. It's not really that bad. In the first century, there were Gnostics, spelt with a G, Gnostic. It's a silent G. And they believed that the Bible... Uh, sorry, that the body is evil and that the spirit is good. Some Gnostics, on the back of that, were really hard on the body. They whipped themselves, they fasted, they treated their bodies really harshly to keep it in subjection. But other people, other, other Gnostics decided that um, actually the spirit's basically good, the body's really bad, so we might as well just indulge the body because it doesn't really matter. And uh, the spirit will sort of have a relationship with God anyway. So the idea was there, I can't help it. So you had, you had Gnostics who believed the same error, but it, it led to two different conclusions. Some of them were really ascetic and stoic and hard on themselves, and others just thought, can't help it. 
it's the way the body is might as well indulge it and they were thoroughly immoral the underlying idea is that humans are basically good people if we could just get things right better education, better system better self esteem more understanding of our psychological makeup the bible says that we're sinners we, we, we rebel against God we want to push God out we don't want God to rule and reign over us we want to go our own way False teachers tend to think that talk of sin and rebellion against God is miserable and negative and that people won't listen to that. It's too narrow. What you need is encouragement. But a good doctor, a good doctor will always seek to make an accurate diagnosis, won't he? How can you know what the cure is if you don't know what the illness is? How will people seek a saviour if they don't first realise that there's something very, very wrong with us as human beings? If it's not sin, it's the issue of salvation. False teachers always tend to add something else onto Jesus. Jesus was a great man, he was a great teacher, he was a great prophet. But what you really need is a little bit of Jesus and some of this as well. We haven't got time to go into all the detail here. Paul talks about the circumcision group. In Acts chapter 15, there was a whole debate in Jerusalem about... When when Jews became Christians, it was fantastic. This is the fulfilment of the Old Testament. This is great. But then Gentiles started becoming Christians. Hang on a minute. It's not for them, is it? As well. If they're going to become Christians, they need to be circumcised first, surely. False teachers arising within the church and saying, oh yes, you need Jesus to be saved, but you need this as well. It's always Jesus plus something else. And the last thing that false teachers do is when we talk about change, moral change, they always focus on the outside and not the inside. They insist on keeping rules. Jesus and the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Jesus said, Jesus reserved his sharpest criticism for religious people who were trying to tick boxes. We've done that, we've done that, we've done that. They didn't love God. Jesus said, you're like like graves that have been painted white and inside you're full of dead men's bones. What a scathing. Thanks very much, Jesus. (laughs) Scathing. But this is human nature, isn't it? These false teachers are rebellious. They're they're never subjected to any kind of control. They're undisciplined. They refuse any authority. They're headstrong, unteachable. They don't listen. They just cannot accept that the Bible is God's word. They believe anything but believe that. Paul says they talk a lot but achieve very little. They're deceptive. They look plausible but they lead people away from the Bible. And it's worth noting, isn't it? Just because someone has an audience doesn't mean that they're telling the truth. They're greedy, 
for money or for praise. They're, they're in it for themselves, not for God. And Paul says very scathingly at the end of uh, chapter 1, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. This is why it's so important for Christian leaders to have blameless character. These men, they're teaching and their lives don't back up what they're preaching. They claim to know God, but their lives show that they don't. How does a Christian leader deal with this? Well, Paul says, he must be able to encourage faith and refute error. John Calvin said, a minister must have two voices. One to gather the sheep and one to drive off the wolves. Isn't that brilliant? One to gather the sheep and one to drive off the wolves. The Bible is sufficient to do both. So the Christian leader must, be, he must know the truth and he must be able to communicate it. When you read through Titus, how many times does Paul say teach? Chapter 2, verse 1, you must teach. Chapter 2, verse 2, teach. Verse 3, teach. Or the, the primary function of a Christian leader is to hold fast to this trustworthy message so that he can teach it. To encourage. To lift people's eyes off themselves and towards God and Christ. And to command people to believe in God's promises. To encourage healthy obedience to God's word. And to refute lies. There's a lot of religions who have ways of silencing their enemies. They just kill them. Bosh. But the Bible doesn't teach us to use violence. But to use truth. Refute those who oppose the truth. Our weapons are not guns and swords, but persuasion based on biblical truth. And the aim here isn't to humiliate people, but to bring people out of lies and into truth. That's what Paul says in verse 13. Therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith. The idea is not to win an argument, but to bring people into a light. Well, we're done. What, what are the applications for us? Um, effective churches need strong leaders. Blameless character, hold firmly to the truth of the Bible, communicate it clearly. What about you this morning? Let, let me give you some challenge just as we close. A couple of minutes. The big issue has to be, who are you listening to in your life? What are you allowing to, sh to shape your thinking and behaviour. Perhaps this morning you're a struggling Christian and you need to be encouraged to listen again to the trustworthy message, to hear God's promises to you and to lay hold on them and to say in your heart, Lord, thank you, I'm trusting your promises. Perhaps you may be a Christian this morning and secretly you feel, I've lost my way. And you're beginning in your life to justify poor choices, sinful behaviours. 
You're trying to fit the Bible around your life rather than fit the Bible over your life. The question is, are you teachable? And thirdly, let me just say this. This is the last one. Perhaps you're not a Christian at all, really. Maybe you thought in your life, I go to church, I try to live a good life, and hopefully that will count for something with God in the end. Let me close with this. There was a very pious family. And there was a young girl who grew up in that family who seemed very devout. She regularly attended church. She participated in all the services, singing, praying, taking communion. Everyone around that family believed her to be genuine. And uh, she took ill. And the minister was informed that she was seriously ill. And at her request, he came to see her. And he expected to find a, a very ill, but a happy Christian the sick young lady asked him to take a seat and she said I'm so glad you came because I cannot bear to go out of this world a deceiver and a hypocrite without telling someone she said I cannot afford for the sake of my loved ones to tell you all the sham and deceitfulness and hypocrisy of my life I've talked about religion I've professed religion and I've pretended to be a Christian, but I'm not. I've never really loved the Lord. I've never really loved his service. And now I'm, I must die without any of the prospects of religion and be shut out of heaven forever. The minister spoke to her of the mercy and grace of God. She said, yes, but that's not for me. I've been a worthless hypocrite and God is justly my enemy. My character is finished and what I am I shall be forever. In a few minutes she went out to meet God. What a fearful thing to reach the end of life and realise then that all along you've been pretending. Hold fast. Trustworthy message. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness and with his mouth he confesses resulting in salvation may that be true for every one of us here this morning